Meet Yelp for Restaurants. Not the software company, but the people who love restaurants so much they formed a team dedicated to our industry. Before Catherine joined the customer success team, she managed the modern in New York. Yeah, that modern. Before Julia joined the team, she worked at Oshaval in Chicago for half a decade. Yelp is for restaurants because our people are restaurant people. Meet the new Yelp at restaurants.yelp.com forward slash podcast. Now here we go. But only until you're standing next to Michael Anthony or watching Michael White make pasta or Missy Robbins make her pasta or Dominique Crenn make her dish, do you really fully like understand what it is that they've gone through to get where they are? And when you can humanize that experience for your cooks and for your servers and for your guests, you really start to show and implement what it means to have a mentorship and what that looks like. I would not be where I am today had I not had mentorship or continued to have mentorship. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. What do you do when you can literally do anything? Chef Gavin Kasem worked with some of the most talented chefs in the world. He helped awarded restaurants in major markets. He could have opened anything, anywhere, and he chose to go back to Minneapolis. Today, we discuss the merits of following your heart and the positive impacts that it can have personally and professionally. As it turns out, true success is intentional. The whole idea of it, I think, is ultimately rooted from the beginning and how you perceive yourself and the character of you and where you want to be and where you want to grow to, right? So I look back often. When I started to work for Danielle Balud in 2008, I think that when I first took that job, I know, I don't think, I know when I first took that job, I took that job with the idea and the intent of learning as much as I could possibly learn under his guidance and mentorship with the eyes on the prize somewhere else, which was maybe to open up my own space. What I didn't realize at the time when I thought that was that that was a really ignorant way to look at something because what I ended up doing was realizing that I didn't live in any sort of present matter, but I only looked into the future of what could be without focusing on what was right in front of me. And I remember very vividly that Danielle sat me down and said, we're going to redo Cafe Blue. We're going to redesign it. You're going to reconceptualize how you want the kitchen laid out. I want you to be a part of the process. And he said, and I know that it says Cafe Balloon on the awning, but I want you to treat it like it's yours. And how would you build it? What does that look like? And that was a light bulb for me. And it just kind of went off and said, okay, treat it like it is yours, build it the same way. And then you'll understand kind of what all that looks like. And it was the greatest gift ever given to me in that context, because when I came home to Minneapolis to open Spoon and Stable, that wasn't a light switch that I had to flip on and be like, okay, now I'm the owner. So things are different. It was just like, okay, now I'm the owner. So it's the same thing, but I'm in Minnesota and I'm not in New York and I'm not under Danielle. And I don't have this like infrastructure and this empire around me. There's maybe not the same safety net that I once had, but I think I've tripped up enough to like figure out how not to fall in that safety net so heavily like I did when I was with him. And that was really important. So ultimately, I think you have to be able to treat it like it's yours. So 
I think in any entrepreneurial endeavor, there's hubris, right? I can do this better than someone else, especially in our industry, because most of the restaurants you open are in failed restaurant spaces, right? So we assume to some degree that we have a better idea or we understand the code better than the guy that was in there before us. But to go from New York to Minnesota, what was that jump like? Why did you make the choice to move into a smaller market when you could have easily stayed in New York, flourished there, moved to LA, got a house in the hills, 12 girlfriends? Everybody has a different path. But there does seem to be this universally common path where when you've seen the success that you've seen, you stay in major markets. Yeah, it's part of why I left, because I'm not one to really flow with the stream of the river all the time. You know, and I grew up here, so I remember watching this market pretty closely. I looked at spaces in LA. I looked at spaces in San Diego. I looked at spaces in New York. But when I came back here and I found this space that is now Spoon and Stable, you know, it really just clicked. It felt right. It felt like the right move for me at the time. It still feels right where it is too. And I loved being in New York. I loved working for Danielle, but I never wanted that relationship to feel competitive. I always wanted that relationship to feel like a friendship, like a mentorship. For all of those reasons, I felt like the best way I could kind of utilize that was to maybe not be in the same market where he was so prominent, but that wouldn't have mattered with him. I know he wouldn't have thought of it that way, but it just kind of all clicked for me. I would watch the way that the media would work and the way that the guests would work. And it's like, everyone's very well-traveled, right? And so, yes, being in LA and San Francisco and Chicago and New York, there are 100% advantages to that, which is you're in an A-market city. All of those places have Michelin. So that's a different guide that people live up to that understand sort of the history of Michelin. It kind of gives you a benchmark. But I would watch the way people would be excited about B-market cities. And I would think to myself, like, is there a way that I could capture that excitement in a B-market city like Minneapolis? And if so, what do I have to do to get there? Let's talk about what you actually had to do to get there. I would assume coming out of such a successful restaurant and having been mentored by many different people, and you had been in many different markets, San Diego, New York, Toronto, I would assume that you had a checklist, right? These are the essential elements that make a successful restaurant. If I do A, B, C, and D, this restaurant should be a success, theoretically. Did that checklist exist? Yes and no. There's a checklist in terms of, I look at things as very calculated, right? Like what is the calculated risk of going to a market like Minneapolis and opening up a restaurant? What areas do I need to make sure I can mitigate as much risk as possible? So here are the things that I knew versus here are the things I didn't know. One, I knew that rent was a lot less than New York City. I knew that getting access to great contractors and subcontractors and allowing them to help build your dream with you versus for you, which is very important, was an advantage here versus what I had seen in New York. Being 20 minutes away from some of the best farms in the country and talking to farmers to help you grow vegetables, to help you raise cattle chicken, ducks, et cetera, et cetera. Those are 20 minutes to two hours away from where I am. And it was easy for me to access that pretty quickly. What I didn't know and came to find out quickly was that the life is just different here. And the fact that people would tell me all the time, you'll never book a table past nine o'clock at night, right? It's not Midwestern, which by the way, is not true. I was told all of these things that it could be, and I felt like we debunked a lot of those a lot of those things because we came into the market to just be who we were and what we wanted to achieve. Uh, so 
I didn't allow fear to be calculated into that risk assessment. I wanted to sort of give myself the credit that I had worked through a lot of my maturity and fear issues and just say like, listen, you are very good at what you do. You can go into this market and achieve success. Let's talk about what you do. So yes, you're an amazing chef. You're an award-winning chef and all of that. But I'm curious to know when you look at your success, when you look at the success of your restaurants, how much of it do you attribute to great food and how much of it do you attribute to business prowess? To be honest with you, I contribute a majority of it to hospitality. And I think that our business prowess prowess is really through the eyes of how do we take care of one another and then how do we take care of our guests. So I root a lot of what we do through the eyes of a hospitalitarian. My ego as a chef will tell you that I care a lot about the food and I hope that everybody comes in and tells you it's about the food. The reality of my ego knows that that's not entirely true. And I embrace that fully. And what I want to figure out and what I always wanted to figure out was how do we create the most genuine spirited hospitality experience? So when people walk into this space, see Spoon, you know, Spoon is a very small facade. And so when you look at this restaurant from the outside, you think it's going to be a very, very small restaurant. And you walk in and the ceilings are 28 feet tall from floor to ceiling. It has a huge skylight. It's 7,000 square feet. It has this energy. And so from the second you walk in the door, and I'm looking at it, the second you walk in the door to the 20 feet to the host stand, your eyes go up and you go, wow. Now that is a moment in which we've recalibrated the way that you're going to think before you sit down to the table, which gives us an opportunity to create a hospitality-focused experience that's going to go beyond the measurable thought that you dreamed of prior to walking in here. And that has always been what I've put the most emphasis on. I mean, food, consistency of food is what keeps people coming back in a way of a craveable experience. I think both you and I can probably relate to you go visit somewhere in a city and you had X at some city and you're like, my God, I just got to go back. I'm craving it. There's a craveable experience to that brings you back into that space. But the warmth of hospitality keeps you coming back over and over and over again. It's critical. And I think that there has to be a marketing strategy that falls into that, right? That you're having an ongoing conversation with your people. 7,000 square feet is massive. It's absolutely massive. I mean, I ran a nightclub in Hollywood in the early 2000s that was 8,000 square feet. And it was a struggle to fill on a nightly basis. You think a 7,000 square foot restaurant, marketing has to play a huge role in that, right? I think a lot of that has helped with the way social media is and how you market and what that looks like because people can follow the restaurant and then they can follow the personalities inside of that restaurant if that's myself as the chef or other people. And that helps create a bit of that energy and buzz. But I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that, listen, if you walk into a space and it's Tuesday, take today, it's Monday, right? So you walk into a space Monday or Tuesday or whatever, and it's 6 p.m., if it's a quarter full, you're like, shit, did we pick the wrong spot? Oh, yeah. Right? But if you walk in at 6 o'clock on a Tuesday and it's packed, you're like, it's amazing. I love being here. This is good energy. I don't feel like it's too, you know, and that starts to take on a life of its own. And I learned a long time ago, you don't have to manage that, right? You just let that take on the life of its own and let the guests experience what they want to experience because they deserve it and they're here for it. Let's talk about iterations from one restaurant to the next. What are the lessons you've learned as you've iterated restaurant concepts over time? These are the mistakes I would never make again. These are the best practices that I've adopted over time. Any of those come top of mind? One of the things that I always find fascinating about our profession is that when you open up another restaurant and you talk to people about what it is you're doing, 
sometimes they ask, oh, so does that mean you're going to close one of your other ones to focus on this new one? Or will it be the same? Like we're opening up a restaurant in the Four Seasons here called Mara, which will be Mediterranean. And they'll say, oh, so are you going to do like Spoon and Stable over there? Or So I think one of the things that I continue to learn and try to practice is how to best communicate that every restaurant has its own personality. I look at them, you know, they're all like children. You want them to grow and prosper on their own, and they sort of create their own personality through that experience. But what I've also come to understand is that one of the reasons restaurants are so personal to people, to guests specifically, is that they help develop a lot of what the personality of the restaurant truly becomes. And so when that restaurant either fails at expectations for that guest after many years of operation, or God forbid, closes, the guest internalizes that a lot and thinks to themselves, I had a imprint on that space. I was part of the fabric of that restaurant. Now it's shut down because, or now it's not delivering to the experience that I wanted to. So every time we open new restaurants and we think of these new ideas and we dream, I try to pull away from talking to people about it being as a concept. Because when I think of the word concept, I think of, I've thought of it, I'm going to create it, I'm going to walk away from it. And what I want people to understand is that we've been dreaming about this space. And we're going to close our eyes every time we want to really dream harder. We're going to keep going into it. We're going to keep leaning into what we want that space to be like. And so having one restaurant and then going to two is always the hardest, in my opinion, because you're trying to figure out, like, how do I build an infrastructure? How do I pay for that infrastructure? Now, instead of me as the chef, I need me and one other chef. And now I need two GMs. But when you go from like two to three or three to four, it's not that it necessarily gets easier. It's just that your infrastructure is put into place. And so you have more people that you can rely on who have been through it before and can ask the questions that you asked when you opened up the second one, or they'll catch it before you even ask to have to ask the question. And so a lot of the times when I step back and I think about the spaces that we want to open, I look at the team of who we have and I'll say to the team, do you want to do this? Are you guys ready for this? Everybody knows what this means, right? And if the answer is no, nobody wants to do it, you have to listen to that too. I mean, you can't just be like, no, 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 it's a great space. We're going to do it. We're going to take it. It's like, look, you want everybody to buy into it as well. Again, it's a calculated risk. You're sitting here in Chef White's and I'm wondering, how has your role changed over the years or has it not? Yeah, I mean, it certainly has. My work life starts early in the day and then my public work life starts at 5 p.m. when the doors open. So there is that expectation, I think, from the guests and from the team, and even for myself to be available and cooking on the line with the crew. And that's usually tasting and plating and being with them. But listen, I have two children. I have a 10-year-old and a 12-year-old and one on the way. If my children have a seven o'clock hockey game and I can leave, I'm going to leave and go see their hockey game. It doesn't mean I don't feel guilt (laughs) when I leave the restaurants because I do. But I've also accepted that that will be a forever, and that's okay. But, you know, I'm not necessarily on the line cooking every single day. I mean, even when I was the chef at Cafe Belude, I was on the line expoing the end of breakfast, all of lunch, all of dinner. And it was a pretty rigorous experience. And trust me, I loved every second of it. I never would have traded a minute for it. But it was hard. It was a lot of work, and it's exactly what I wanted. And I'm grateful for every second I had there. But now my life is a little different. We have over 130 employees that work for this company. That means we have 130 people to be financially responsible for who rely on us to help provide healthcare to them, 401k, which matches up to 4% to accidental insurance, to a full schedule of work. 
And that means that my hands need to be in everything from marketing to fulfilling events, to being able to work the room, to bring people back to all of those things. And I take a great responsibility in that, but I also love that. That's actually what keeps me inspired mostly. Are you a small business owner? Did you know that Visa's online small business hub has tools, discounts, and resources to help you run your business? So whether you're a business beginner or an entrepreneurial expert, find the solutions, tools, and tips you need to help you take your business to the next level. Plus, if you have a Visa business credit or debit card, you can get access to cardholder benefits like Visa Savings Edge, a savings program which can help you save on everyday business expenses like office essentials, travel, and more. When you enroll your Visa business card in Visa Savings Edge, you'll have access to valuable offers which can help turn qualifying business purchases made with your enrolled Visa business card into savings for your business. Learn more at visa.com slash smallbusinesshub. Once again, that's visa.com slash smallbusinesshub. Visa, a network working for everyone. Let's talk about celebrity chefdom. It's such an interesting dynamic. I mean, there are countless chefs that you see on TV, but you never really hear from. There are also a bunch of, I would say, really famous chefs publicly on Food Network that aren't revered in the same way that you are within the industry. I interview a bunch of chefs, high profile, low profile, and otherwise, and they all recommended having you on the show. You're like a chef chef. And then you have this massive public profile on top of it. What do you think separates you from the masses? I will say that when I was in San Diego and I was the chef at the Rancho Bernardo Inn, I was really fortunate in 2007 to receive the Food Wine Magazine Best New Chef. I competed for Bocuse d'Or for Team USA. And then I did the next Iron Chef on Food Network. And that was literally within six months of my life. Okay. It was an exceptional amount of exposure and overwhelming beyond measure. And when I took the job with Danielle, it was an incredibly conscious decision to take a job and work for somebody who I respected. But also, I really wanted to have a nosebleed seat looking down to see how did somebody like him work through this profession. They had five restaurants when I started with him. When I left, I think they had 16. So I got to see an incredible amount of growth in this seven-year-plus period that I was there. And making that decision was important because I was considered a celebrity chef by the measure of media. But... That didn't mean anything to me at that time. What I knew was as I was still missing tools to be the chef that I wanted to become. And if I truly wanted to be an owner and an operator and a restaurateur, I didn't have any of those skills. And I knew that I didn't have those skills. And so the only way for me to get them was to go and work for somebody that would allow me to learn those skills. And I often say that working for him was my PhD in this business. I mean, Marcel Daron, who was his chief financial officer at the time, he would sit through P&L statements with me and we'd walk through every line item, every G&L code. And I would understand why if you pull this lever, this lever goes up or down and what that looks like and what that feels like. And that was an important thing for me to go through. And the celebrity chef world, as it stands, it's a very bizarre universe to be in because you have a lot of different spectrums of everybody. You have all of what you mentioned. Some people who are on TV who don't cook in restaurants, but they're great on television. And that classifies them to be that. And that's great. There's other ones who are chefs and they cook that way and they're cooking all the time. But 
that's their world and they're still classified to be that. It's all these different types of personalities of celebrity chefdom. But at the end of the day, I remember when we won an award here at Spoon and I was talking to a colleague of mine who's a mentor and he said the best thing ever. He says, just remember every single award you get as a celebration of yesterday. Mm. And he said, so when you wake up today, you could do whichever you did on TV, you could do whatever you did wherever, but guests that walk in tonight care about tonight and they care about themselves at that table tonight. And so all of those things have just kind of stuck with me. You've got aspiring chefs listening that want the celebrity that you've achieved. And I don't think anyone would pass myself included on the awards that you've received because there isn't an organization out there that's giving out prestigious awards that you don't have one sitting on the shelf. What decisions did you make that led to that level of celebrity that led to those awards? Is it simply like excellence in your craft or do you think it goes deeper than that? I think it's deeper. I mean, I think there's a lot of different versions of how you can look at it. I think there's a sense of discipline that you need to have in order to achieve whatever is this your version of success. And everybody has that different version. I think that it becomes very easy to get wrapped up in what others think about you in that version of success. And if you allow yourself to be wrapped up in that, it can be a pretty scary slide both up and down. And usually it's pretty quick both ways. And then I think there's a sense of manifestation that goes into it. I've always been one to write down my goals and to list what those look like from a year goal to a three-year to a five-year, from personal to professional, how they intersect with one another and how they weave together and what that looks like. And I just believe that if you can put in what that work looks like to you and you can focus on that discipline and that manifestation and that idea of what the craft really is all about and the profession you can achieve that success. But again, it's like, what is that success to you? I think that's the number one question you have to ask. I mean, going back to the first part of this conversation where you asked about moving away from New York to come to Minneapolis, to a lot of people leaving New York City and coming to Minnesota was not success to them, right? But I can tell you on this podcast today, I have had very, very well-known chefs who both you and I know who have come up to me privately and said, you leaving New York inspired me to leave New York. Mm. And the reason I left is because I saw that you could do it. And then I knew I could do it. And I had less fear. And that fear isn't the fear of leaving the city. The fear is being forgotten about when you leave the city. And that's very different. And it took me three years to answer that question for myself. If I was ready to leave New York City, I didn't wake up and say, I'm ready to move to Minneapolis. For three years, I woke up and I thought to myself, are you sure? Are you really sure? Do you truly believe that this is the right move for you? And if you do, go for it. But you have to hold on to it and you have to actually really believe it. You cannot fake this. And that was a three-year battle. And so for anybody who might think that that's an overnight thing, it's not. And often what happens too is that we get wrapped up in time and we try to create things quickly and we try to see that instant gratification right away and we try to see that goal be achieved tomorrow. And it just takes time. I'm 42 years old. I've had the pleasure of being in this profession for a long time because I started at a young age, but I had the good fortune to get a lot of those awards that you get before whatever age you're supposed to be. And it's like, okay, so after I'm 30, I'm nothing. (laughs) You know, like (laughs) I won all those awards before you're 30, but can I still keep winning things? Can I still keep proving success? Can I still keep doing all those things? And I would argue that I'm actually having a little bit more fun now than I was probably then. Well, and I think that that intentionality that you talked about from the beginning, it's a through line throughout your career, even today, 
I see you trying to lead a conversation within our industry. It's one of the reasons I was so excited to talk to you. Can you share with me the, the genesis of the Synergy series and what you're trying to achieve there? Yeah. So we started at five. This will be our fifth season. And so the intention was the first year was all New York chefs. So it was Michael White, Michael Anthony, April Bloomfield, Danielle Blude. And then every year it's developed into different chefs. And the intention of that series from day one was to expose our team, not as much the guests necessarily, but our team to these different chefs from around the country. Not everybody has the means financially or the benefit of time to go and work in different cities around the country or the world. And that should never be a detriment to their growth or to the exposure. What Instagram and other social media platforms have allowed us to do is they've allowed us to see what these other environments are like without actually visiting them. But only until you're standing next to Michael Anthony or watching Michael White make pasta or Missy Robbins make her pasta or Dominique Crenn make her dish, do you really fully like understand what it is that they've gone through to get where they are? And when you can humanize that experience for your cooks and for your servers and for your guests, you really start to show and implement what it means to have a mentorship and what that looks like. I would not be where I am today had I not had mentorship or continue to have mentorship. And I believe so much in what that looks like in the passing down of that generational torch. And I often have said this before, and I believe it. It's like I look at Paul Bocuse and his generation, what they did to our profession in bringing the chef out of the kitchen and giving it this different like life, right? And then I look at Danielle and his generation and what they did, and they gave us the world as a passport. I mean, I could make pate on crout in midtown Manhattan or in Singapore, and it was the same recipe. But when I walked out that back door, I was in a different world. So now what's our generation going to do for the next? And COVID pretty much threw it on our doorstep, right? And said, you now have an opportunity to truly transform this profession and mold it into how you want it to be, to have it grow into something different or into something better or into something with a different voice and maybe take it away from the industry and turn it into the profession that we all want it to become. And to professionalize what it is that we're doing is part of Synergy Series. And it's bringing these chefs in, it's bringing in the director of operations and director of dining room to their bartenders, whoever they want to bring. And we pay for that experience through our sponsors. And then we're able to sell tickets and then we give money to charity, which is great. But we're able to teach our team so many invaluable lessons during that experience that they're here. I want to talk about growth and as it relates to intentionality. I think this Four Seasons deal that you're working on is really, really interesting. And it's a great way to grow in what is a somewhat lower risk scenario. Is that a great way to frame it or no? Yeah, I mean, there's less of a risk in terms of financial because as the way the deal is broken down, it's not a lot of our money that it's none of our money that's put into the space that way. There's reputational risk in the fact that you're not locked into a 20 year lease and things like that. So, you know, there's reputational risk in that. But I've had the pleasure of working with Four Seasons in the past when I worked for Danielle and you alluded to being in Toronto and that's where I was. I was based in Manhattan, but I ran the Cafe Balloon in Toronto under the Four Seasons umbrella. And it was an incredible experience to be able to work with those professionals and what they do and how much they go out of their way to make sure that guests are truly happy and the people who work there are truly happy. And so when they came to town here, I just kind of felt like it was a no-brainer for me to go into that space, whether or not they had other people that they were interviewing or considering, <laughs> I guess I didn't think about or care about. 
I just thought that we were the right fit automatically for that space. And by the time we open that, Josh, it'll be a three-year experience for us. It has had its ups and downs through the last three years because of dealing with COVID and just not questioning if the project will get done, but more questioning like, I mean, some of the people that I now work with daily and see every day, I've talked to for two years and never met them in person. Right. And so there's just a different feeling when you're in a room and you can read somebody's body language about what you're talking about. And when I think of restaurants and when I dream about them, they're very personal to me. And I'm not sitting around and thinking to myself like, oh, what marketing story can I make up that'll work here? It's like, no, like there's a real personal experience that I want to pull from when I build and open these restaurants. And Mara is going to be that. And so is the cafe, Soka. You mentioned COVID. Obviously, it affected you professionally. I'm sure it affected you on some level personally, how did it affect you as a restaurateur? Did it change the way you define success? Did it affect how you see work-life balance on a day-to-day basis? Did it move the needle in any direction? I mean, I think it moved every needle in every direction, one way or the other, no matter how you look at it. I will say that I think where we are in the country, COVID was a smaller version of effect versus the George Floyd movement that happened. Being in Minneapolis, that was far more moving and emotional than COVID was to me. I mean, yes, COVID was very, very hard. And there were transactional experiences that you saw change overnight. The very idea of what we do for a living, which is taking care of people, was ripped away from us literally in 24 hours. I will never forget the moment in which the governor's office told me The restaurants are going to shut down again in two days, get prepared. And this was the second closure. And it was the week before Thanksgiving. And I walked from Demi to Spoon, which is they're next door to each other. And I walked in the back hallway of Spoon and Sable. And I just stood in the back hallway and I closed my eyes and listened to the cling of the glasses, to the noise, to the voices, to the chattering of like the pots and pans with the cooks. And I literally thought to myself, when am I going to hear that again? And I genuinely didn't know the answer to that question. And that terrified me. The first closure didn't scare me as much because everything was so reactive. But the second closure was a proactive closure that we all knew was coming. And that's the one that probably scared me the most. And so I remember taking a step back and a couple of things happened. I mean, we created a nonprofit organization called Heart of the House five days after we got shut down which helped bridge the financial gap for a lot of our employees. We've given away over $300,000 to our teams through this experience. We shut down Belcor and YZ and we turned that into two bakeries. So we saw what that can look like as a gain for us and what was an important business decision, even though personally that really hurt. And it was an incredibly difficult decision to make and one that I still think about and reflect on. But I also saw our team, we had 32 managers that were working during the whole time And we came together in a way that was really powerful and it made us very vulnerable. And I think that that vulnerability, Josh, allowed us to really tap into the core of what it is that we want to do and why do we want to do it. And I think that a lot of restaurants could walk away from COVID and think to themselves like, oh, we got through it. Like, here we are again. It's like, yeah, we got through it, but it doesn't mean we're never going back. And it doesn't mean that there's something else that can't shake you off the rails. Anything can happen. But like, how do you make this not so transactional? And what does that look like? And how do you create a little bit more meaning to what it is that we're doing for everybody in the team and what that looks like? And that's been a lot of our focus now. And growth is important and growth is inevitable when it comes to what it is that we do. And that doesn't mean you have to grow more restaurants. 
That means that you can have one restaurant and grow in that one restaurant. But you have to take inventory of that. And it's easy to get caught up in the, I'm in service every day and the curtains yeah. open up at five and all the same shit. It can get easy to get caught up in that, but you got to stop and you got to take inventory and you have to think to yourself, like, what does it mean for me today? And why am I here? And you know what? There's going to be some days that you show up and it sucks and you're not happy to be there and you don't want to be there and you're the owner. And you have to understand that that's okay. It's not like you have to put on a fake face and say, like, I'm going to get through it. Go home. Do something. You talk about growth and you talk about it in many different ways. And there are these two big ideas, right? The idea of growing wide, multiple locations and growing deep, right? Multiple revenue streams, trying to get as much as you can out of the locations you have. Obviously, you have this restaurant opening with the Four Seasons. But beyond that, do you want more restaurants? Do you want to get more firmly ingrained? You have this massive profile. You want to sell more spoons. What do you want to do? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that we'll probably grow some more. We really love the idea of the Belcourt Bakery and the Cooks of Crocus Hill brands that are joined together now, you know, where we sell kitchen retail and we do cooking classes and have bakeries. Like, that's been great. We have a catering company that cooks for professional athletes called KZ Pro. So we're the official chefs for the Minnesota Wild, the Timberwolves and the Lynx. And that's been a lot of fun. And we've been doing that for over five years. I mean, it's just kind of behind the scenes. So the question that I'm asking myself now is less of do I want to grow, but more of where do I want to put my energy? And if that means I want to put it into building five more restaurants, that's what I'm going to do. If it means I want to just kind of take inventory of what I have and be content with this and continue to grow off of what we have today, that's probably what we're going to do for the immediate future. We're going to open Mara, we'll open Soka, and we'll probably open up one more thing in the next year or two. And then we'll just kind of ride that for a bit and focus on what that looks like and how we can achieve consistency with that growth. And then if we want to grow more, we will. I don't ever really look at it and think to myself, like, I need 10 restaurants, right. four bakeries. You know, I just don't. I walk into spaces all the time and it's like, I mean, I got an email the other day that said, hey, would you like to open up a restaurant in this part of the town? And we have this and this. And I just wrote back, hit me up in 14 months. And if I say yes, in 14 months, we can talk. Because I don't even want to waste the energy right now to think about it. This is an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, I like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. Do you have any advice or words of encouragement you'd like to offer? You know, I think our industry has taken a hit in a way that makes us question what it is that we're doing more so than ever before. And we've all had that climb to the top and we took a pretty hard free fall with COVID hitting and shortly thereafter as well. And what I would encourage people to understand and to focus on is that this industry is all about giving back to somebody and something. And if you genuinely love to take care of people, you're in the right industry. There's nothing better in the world than taking care of people. I started to cook because I remember at age seven, watching my grandmother and I cook together and my cousins come in, in the house and smile. And I thought, that's all it took to get them around the table. And that inspired me so much and that continues to inspire me. And I think that often we can get caught up in all the bullshit and it's really easy to get caught up in that. And it's really easy to think about the short-term goals and the short-term gains. But the truth of the matter is, is that there's no stopwatch on what it is you do. I mean, listen, Danielle didn't open up the restaurant until he was 40. So like I said earlier, I'm 42 years old and I've had Spoon for almost eight years. If I was Danielle, I would tell you I've had restaurant Danielle for two. And that's a remarkable comparison when you think about the way we think about time and structure of time today. There's no race. It's not a finish line. Like There has to be patience. You have to be disciplined. 
And a lot of that comes from self-discipline more than anything else. So hang in there and find somebody who you can always talk to about this stuff. That's Gavin Kaysen. For more on all of the chef's projects, visit gavincason.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Copel. You've been listening to Full Comp.